podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Wagon Wheel with Jared Kimber. We're here on Spotify Green Room, unless you're listening somewhere else. And then we're not on Spotify Green Room, are we? We're, I don't know, in the Red Inca feed or on my YouTube page. But I'm currently on the Spotify Green Room chat. So remember, you can subscribe to me or follow me or I don't know, whatever you do on Spotify Green Room. And then when I appear in these chats, you'll get an alert. I think that's how it works. I haven't really done the mass on this so far. Just a big shout out to our sponsors, obviously Manscaped, 20% off if you use the code REDINCA, and that's all one word, and you get free worldwide shipping on all the implements you'll ever need to correctly shave your testicles. And really, what more could you ask for than that? Thanks to Bodyline T-shirts as well. And remember that if you are listening to the podcast now through the REDINCA feed and there's like ads all the time and you're like, eh, I'm not a fan of ads. There's a way of getting around that. You can just support us on Patreon and we give you a feed over there and you get ad-free. You also quite often get the episodes earlier, although not this episode, because if you're listening to this on Spotify, this is the earliest you can get it. But you get my general point. Huge thanks to everyone who has supported us on Patreon and buy me a coffee and everyone who comes onto this chat as well. Uh, remember on Patreon, not only can you support us and help grow the network and we can hopefully bring in a third podcast a week and all these sorts of great things, but also it allows you, if you're on the first class or above tier, you can uh, ask questions to begin this particular podcast. But just before we do, I just want to uh, point out that I think this is right, although I'm not sure he got back to me on Instagram, but Busker, who is a regular commentator on the uh, Spotify Green Room, he asked a question or suggested something, or we had a conversation on one of these chats, I believe, about pinch hitters. And if you go over to ESPN Crick Info today and you go over to my YouTube channel, there's a big thing there. I don't remember him saying that, but he's contacted me, so I'm sure he did. Um, I probably forgot to write his name down at the time. Otherwise, I would have mentioned him in the YouTube page for sure. I think Crick Info would have thought it was weird if I just mentioned Basket. But big shout out to him. And remember, that's that's kind of one of the reasons I do this. Like, obviously, I like doing this as a podcast and it it's quite easy for me. But another reason is that you guys ask questions that I haven't thought of yet, and it allows me to write different kinds of pieces. So big shout out to Basker there and everyone else. But I'll just get to the Patreons. Uh, Satchmo says, given the high rate of injuries, are test captains now retaining their selections of quick bowlers, meaning that you need to have six or seven good ones to be number one? He brings up the 19, uh, the West Indies team in the 80s did not have their best quartet in most games. This is something I think that probably I would say over the last five or six years has become something that teams have worked out a lot. So the most test matches that one eleven has ever played together is 12, which is the West Indies team of, is it 1990, that era? I think Australia's got to 11 players, 11 test matches or 10 test matches a couple of times. Karakea, um Date has written about that a few times, uh, I believe. And teams have started to work that out and, you know, to go back through it. I remember when, even when I was looking at, the West Indies, how long it actually took them to get the four fast bowlers of the apocalypse all in one team. They they didn't have many spinners, but they quite often, often had medium paces and other bowlers around. It, we remember them as the four bowlers, and, and you can go to the Indian quartet is another very good example of this, but it's very rare for all these players to be fit at the same time, selected at the same time, all those you know basic things that happen. So I think teams have really worked that out. So I could be wrong. I'd be very doubtful now that 
most of the smarter international teams look at their sides as a best 11 anymore. They look at it as groupings. I think, you know, England have been quite honest with the, um, they, they do the, oh, I completely forgot, uh, the depth charts that they took from American sports. Um, I think other teams do other variations of that, you know, whether it be your best squad, your best group. Um, there's also the platoon theory. It's not just fastballs, though, South Smoke, because batters get injured all the time too. And, you know, your wicket keepers drop out and your spinners are better in different conditions. So I don't think teams think about it in case of best 11 anymore, which is probably one of the best things ever because if you look in the history of cricket, as I just said, we don't really have best, best 11s. We never did. It was kind of a thing that we got obsessed about that never happened. So I think teams are just a bit, little bit smarter now and working that out. So yeah, all the teams will need a multiple options of seam bowlers, of batters, of spinners, whatever it may be um, in any in any situation, really. Will says, could the 100 have worked better as a 50-ball competition, as in the name refers to combined across both innings? It just really feels like it's struggling to distinguish itself from the blast, let alone other franchise competitions. Really, Will? Like, literally... Other than the hardcore Blast fans, last year the 100 was just 10 times bigger. Crickinfo and the Cricketer and Twitter, everywhere, the 100 was massive. It completely distinguished itself from the Blast in almost every way, even negatively. (laughs) Um, So, no, I I don't get that. I I see what you're saying about the 50-ball competition. Here's my worry about the 50-ball competition, and you can talk about that with the T10 competition as well, which you've mentioned in your question. The problem with the 50 ball and the T10 is I wonder if at that point we're getting too close to rugby sevens. I think rugby sevens is a really, really good gateway sport, but that's what it is, right? Like, I think you can follow T20 cricket and if you want it to be your favorite format of cricket, it could be. And there'll be a lot of people that will do that and may never go on to one day cricket or or test cricket. I'd be very... Interested to see if that's the same with rugby sevens. I watch rugby sevens at the Olympics and I'm like, and I don't even like rugby, but even I'm watching it going, is this it? Is this all I'm watching? It doesn't quite feel like a full sport to me. And I wonder if, and, and as someone who likes T10, sometimes I feel the same with T10. I just, it doesn't quite feel like a proper length game of sport. Um, and maybe that's just because it's in comparison to the other versions or, or whatever it'd be. The same with the 50. I could be wrong here. Um, but if I think what T20 stumbled upon was almost a perfect ability, and the hundreds virtually a T20 as well, but almost the perfect amount of balls that made it feel like a proper sporting event, but also allowed for you know it to be a bit more dynamic and it'd be a bit more, um, uh, well, in in our case, a bit more experimental, you know, a bit uh, you know a bit more exciting. Um, you keep making it shorter. I'm not sure that that is you're going to keep all of that and it still feel like a proper sport. And that's how I feel about rugby sevens. And put, put it this way, almost every other sport in the world has tried to copy T20 formulas. Why would we want to make ours less like that would be my guess. And so the 100 was, I mean, the 100 was stupid, realistically. Um, they could have called it the 120 if they wanted to. Uh, they could have bowled all the overs from one end. I, I, I've come up with the, the 20 balls. There are plenty of ways to do time saving that you didn't need to do that. So I, I find that a little bit weird, but keeping it down to 50 just doesn't it doesn't feel like that much of a sport to me at that point it feels almost like more like a longest drive competition than an actual sport which is fun but it's not the same christopher says i know you've said a few times that you see the ipl in future years becoming maybe a 16 18 tournament doesn't this not create similar problems that the blast has 
Um, obviously, the BCCI would put more marketing and money into it than the ECB, but I find the blast a nightmare to follow and keep track of multiple games and days. Okay, so with the blast, you have Leicester and Derby and Somerset and Kent, very small places, right, that, that are involved with the blast. With the IPL, let's say you had 16 teams and you had a Mumbai North and a Mumbai South or a Mumbai Central and a Mumbai West or whatever, however you manage to do it, the sheer number of people in those other cities is phenomenal. Uh, the IPL hasn't even tapped into the full market of all the different cities in India at the moment. And when you're watching it at the moment, it is set up specifically as to be the number one TV product each night. The problem with that is if you do get a poor game or you do get a game between one region where the local TV audience or streaming audience don't care, they've got nothing else to watch. The reason that baseball and basketball and I suppose Premier League and some of the, these other sports, they give you multiple options. So you have the ability to watch your team more often, but you also have the ability to choose the best game each night. The Blast doesn't work that way because the Blast's main core audience is still all those local areas, and those local areas are quite small. That's not what we're talking about for the IPL. So forget, even if you take away the marketing and everything else, separate to that is the Blast's problem is that it doesn't have four stars or five stars in each team, right? Most Blast teams don't have very... They don't have the best players in the world. Again, with the IPL, you're getting more towards a, well, basketball's probably the best one, or Premier League football's probably the best one, where you have some of the best players in the world playing for all these different teams. The Blast doesn't have any of that. From, from your point of following it, I can understand that, um, but that is, the way, that is the way that you make money, is having four or five games a night. That's really where the IPL's going to go from. The IPL at the moment, when we talk about it making lots of money, it does, but it makes a lot of money in the way that if you release a movie and you do a bunch of Q&As with it, um, Q &As with it and, um, and you do it at selected cinemas, you end up having a huge box office per, per screening. But what you really want is a huge box office when it just goes to every cinema um, in the country. And that's what the IPL is currently doing. What it wants to get to is to be everywhere at all times. That will mean there'll be more highlights. There'll be more going on. Uh, and it is the way, it's not the way that we follow cricket. So I can actually understand your basic question with that, Christopher. But overall, it is actually the way that most of us, if we have a second sport or a third sport, um, uh, is, it is how other sports are done. But ultimately, they're going to do it because it's going to make them more money. It's going to make them a lot more money. Uh, and that's why it will come in, especially as you've got you know, TV channels or multiple channels and streaming platforms where you can just go bang, bang, bang. Um, also, if you look at the way that social media drives this, if you do have a game that doesn't work particularly well, having two other games where something else might happen, even if you have four dud games in the night, there's probably going to be f at least one or two key incidents in each game, which will drive social media traffic for the next games. Uh, so I cannot see a downspot from that. What you will get is you won't get the massive ratings probably that you currently get on each individual IPL game. But that's something that we are setting all these leagues up at the moment is pop-up leagues the ipl is kind of the only one that's kind of almost like a real league um although not quite uh th that pop-up is great you get great crowds and you know everyone gets excited but to make the really big money which is what everyone in cricket wants to make it really needs to be a proper league the way that 
football and basketball and baseball and you know all these other uh, rugby um, all these other sports go about so i'd be shocked if they don't look at something like that uh, i mean they are looking at something like that <laughs> they, they you know whether it, when it comes in i don't know but they are Reverse swing is one of the most incredible parts of our game, but it doesn't happen by accident. It comes from a team effort where each and every member has a job to prepare the ball as well as they can, and then through that group effort, they can get that ball to move gracefully through the air. And you know all this because you're a smart cricket fan, and yet you go out on the field to play with your balls in disarray. If you treat your pubic hair in a shoddy manner, you won't be able to pick up as many wickets as you'd like. But Manscaped have the invention for you. The Lawn Mower 4.0, guaranteed to make your balls reverse. Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 is as graceful as a cover drive, as efficient as a Yorker in the deck. And the Lawnmower 4.0 is a true all-rounder, none of that bits and pieces nonsense. So if you're desperate for a breakthrough with your pubic hair, try Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code REDINCA. That's 20% off with free worldwide shipping at manscaped.com and use the code REDINCA. Let's get your balls going the other way. Uh, Lee says, you've spoken several times, Wait, is that the same question? Oh, okay. Slightly different question. Sorry. <laughs> I thought I thought there was a glitch in the system. You spoke several times about how you could see the IPL become an even bigger tournament. Yes, I just spoke about it a moment ago. How do you see the future of first class and test cricket if the IPL was 16 teams and lasted for five or six months of the year? Do you feel that they could coexist with the greatest specialization of players? Or do you feel the IPL would win out and test of first class cricket would really plummet in standard? Uh, test cricket and first class cricket could definitely plummet in standard. I think that no matter what, it will plummet in. St- Actually, maybe that's wrong. A, you could. You, it may not plummet in standard because we might have more players playing from around the world. So the bigger, the more that cricket spreads, the more talent that we're getting in. I mean, at the moment we're only getting the talent from uh, eight or so nations. You know, 10, 12 nations at most, but eight sort of hardcore, very good test playing nations. So first class cricket and test cricket has the ability to grow in talent from that point of view, but you might get, uh, you know, the next Ben Stokes may not pick a playing with England. He may pick playing um, uh, franchise cricket and T20 cricket, which is, which is very fair, especially if you're talking about a five or six month uh, league. What you would then get is what probably will happen by accident, even because of the, it will probably happen by accident and it might, it should probably happen anyway, which is the splintering. The ICC really shouldn't be running all three formats of cricket. Realistically, test cricket should be out on its own trying to make its own money. One day cricket should be out on its own trying to make its own money. And T20 cricket should be out on its own trying to make its own money. In the same way that Le Mans and in the Indy 500 um, aren't run by the same organizations. A, that would help test cricket because at the moment, no one is really looking after Test cricket, um, and so that was that would certainly change things quite massively. Um, but just on a on a on a basic level, uh, there should be a as more players come into you know from Nepal and Singapore and Thailand and Brazil and Germany and all these different places. As more players come in, there should be an influx of talent in cricket. A lot of those will go towards where the money is. And if Test Cricket and Monday Cricket can't work out how to give players the money, then that will affect those. There's absolutely no doubt. But there'll be more players available and there will be also specialization. So players will be ultra test specialists and ultra T20 specialists, which will actually boost the quality of that. And if there's more money in all three formats of cricket, that means that cricket should win out, especially in the countries that are n- where there are multiple sports options. Uh, so to answer your question, yes and no, but 
it could be a completely different world in the next 20 years of what test cricket is, of what not one-day cricket is. And also, as you say, there could be a, a, a six-month league. There's absolutely no reason why there couldn't be. And it won't just be the IPL either. Um, we could see, you know, the PSL be a very long league as well. The 100 is a possibility, even the Big Bash. Ian says, the Australian women's side are exceptional and thoroughly deserve their World Cup win, but how long can this level of dominance continue before it starts to distract from the growing interest in women's game? Well, that's exactly what we used to say about the Australian men's team, and that's exactly what we used to say about the West Indies men's team. We've had this before. We've had dominant eras like this before where one team is absolutely so much better than anywhere else. I think that you're already starting to see, you know, you've got the, the women's IPL, the women's PSL, perhaps a women's CPL as well, might all be around in the next year to 18 months, two years maybe. The other teams are already working this out and they're already trying to follow this. You've got the women's 100 that's already come on board. Um, I'd be shocked if New Zealand don't try and if they can't do something, then at least inject themselves into the uh, women's big bash, you know, with three teams of their own, which is what I would be doing um, if I, if I, you know, if it was feasible and, and you know, both boards are, you know, there's a lot of very good women's players in New Zealand. They would boost the, the quality of the women's big bash as well. So, uh, the, the, Australia's success has already helped change. There will be more professional women's cricketers because of what the Australians have done. Now, how long will it take for other people to, to catch up? I don't know. But we just had a brilliant World Cup, Ian, and there was a lot of close games, and Australia still dominated their, their half of the tournament. Um, maybe we won't get a close final for a little while. I really don't think it will take that long for England and India to catch up once they have professional leagues. Pakistan's probably coming from further back and New Zealand might struggle to hold on. Um, and I don't know what the next generation of South African women are going to be like after this sort of golden generation. But I'm not too worried about that because that's the sort of thing we kind of hear about sport all the time. You know, is this really good team ruining the game? Generally, they don't. Generally, they move the, the sport forward. Johnny asks, which 100 squads are looking the best? I'm going to be honest, Johnny. Uh, I really haven't had a chance. I kind of finished, you know, I did a little bit of Women's World Cup, but I did England-West Indies at the same time um, and then came into the IPL um, and also watched a bit of um, Bangladesh-South Africa. So the hundreds, not really on my radar at the moment, but uh, it's something I'll probably look at in the next couple of months as the tournament gets closer. What do you think of conspiracy theory popular in some circles blaming Channel 9 uh, for the outcome of the infamous 22 off one ball? Supposedly, they were the ones who imposed the hard deadline on the finish time and wouldn't relent when the rain stopped play. I was under the impression that this was a tournament playing conditions type thing, independent of TV. Well, it, is Channel, it was Channel 9's fault in that Richie Benno came up with that rain regulation. Uh, look, it was a terrible rain regulation done by someone. I, I've always said that you, if, if you want to know how trusted Richie Benno was, despite the fact that he was not an expert in algorithmic mathematics, um, they allowed him to come up with a, a mathematic formula uh, for one-day cricket, which was obviously terrible. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I've never heard that conspiracy before. I've heard a lot of conspiracies about Channel 9 and cricket. I've never heard that one. Um, as far as I am aware, uh, then that's not an issue. And that was just, um, it was, that was going to happen before the, the game came. Um, I think one thing that isn't talked about enough in that particular game is that South Africa, by cricket of that time was behind the rate anyway that was obviously a terrible um uh, rain regulation but they were probably on their way out of the tournament regardless of that that obviously hastened them but from the position they were in i don't know what what percentage of time that they would have won but i wouldn't have thought it would have been that much but the whole thing was hilarious really and terrible and not not exactly what you want to see in a you know major world cup game
But there, it was funny. It's often said that Ireland's previous generation of cricketers were a golden generation. And after comparing it to previous eras of Irish cricket, that's undeniable. Although I tend to think that the current generation actually have far more raw talent. Little, Adair, Young, David Delaney. Yeah, there's a few players coming through there. That's very true. Um, so, sorry, it's a very long question, Nicholas. I'm just trying to get through it. Yeah, clearly the best answer. Opinion. So basically, yeah, opinions on the current crop. I think that that golden generation basically all played in county cricket and built up their skills. And they were the, the great thing about county cricket is that you play so much cricket and all of them would have played a multitude of formats other than maybe someone like Kevin O'Brien. But a lot of those guys came through playing a lot of cricket, um, especially when you're looking at that batting order. I think the batting order is where, so it meant that they had a very consistent base. You might be right that the current, I mean, the current um, uh, era that you're talking about is really young, right? When we saw the majority of these Irish players, they were probably late 20s and they played like thousands of games of cricket between them just because they'd all, I mean, Ed Joyce seems to, you know, seem to have played a million games of cricket. So the, the younger generation of Irish cricketers who are coming through haven't played as much cricket. They haven't played in that kind of environment. Um, uh, they haven't been tested as often at the moment, but I think a lot of it is just that they are um, a lot younger and uh, they haven't been at that point yet. I think when you're talking about a golden generation, what you're really talking about is a bunch of players who were of a similar age and similar experience. And that's what we're talking about with the South African women who I mentioned as a golden generation before. That's generally what a golden generation means. Quite often you will have, you know, overlaps and you'll have younger players and older players. And every now and again, you have like a whole crop of players who are very similar in age who get good at the same time. And I think that's what happened with that other Irish team, which is why they were better than the sum of their parts. This current team... I worry about the batting a lot. I think you're right. There's a lot of raw talent. I'm not seeing it develop the way that it should be. The fact that George Dockerell and um, and the pinch blocker are up the order uh, is a huge concern to me um, when I look at Irish cricket. Uh, and it's something that they've been thinking about quite a bit, to be fair. Um, I had Andrew Balboni on my podcast, actually. So if you go back, you can listen to him um, talking about it. I think they're, they're more than aware of, of that sort of stuff as well. Uh, thank you to everyone on Patreon. All right, let's go through the questions on Spotify. Giovon, you there, Giovon? Yes, I'm there. Beautiful. What's your question, mate? Yeah, my question is um, for the women's 100, I really like the women's format. Why don't they just keep that permanent for the women's game and just like cancel it for the men's game? Because I think it would grow women's game better because I've been watching it on TV. I'm not from the UK. I'm, I'm in the US, originally from the Caribbean, <laughs> and I see a lot of participation in women's 100 cricket. So you're saying that because it was a success for the women's game, keep it there, and then it didn't make as much of a, as a dent in the men's game. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, so the reason it made a dent, the, I, I suppose the best way of putting it is the 100 is bullshit, right? And I'm not dissing the ECB, although, you know, I have more than a few times in my life, but I'm not dissing the DC, ECB. They made a bunch of mistakes. Essentially, what they did was they came up with the T20 um, form of cricket and they put a couple of tweaks on it, right? What you're seeing with the women's 100 is that the games were given equal billing and the promotion of the women was given equal billing. And it wasn't like the women's big bash where they're sort of, all played on a bunch of weekends where, you know, you watch them all in one go, like a, almost like a, 
you know, a carnival of cricket, right? And it wasn't like the women's IPL, which isn't even a women's IPL, right? It's like, was it three games, two games, whatever it was. And so what you saw with the women's 100 really was a very, very well-run professional tournament for women where the women were very present in the marketing and the promotional uh, aspect of the game. The actual 100 doesn't make any doesn't make any difference, right? Like if you give an extra 20 balls to the women, it wouldn't have made that much of a difference. And the same with the men. That was a marketing gimmick that the ECB thought they needed, which I don't think they really did need, but they were worried that it would be confused with the blast, even though that really says more about their lack of imagination with marketing than anything else. So it doesn't matter to me if, if, that, if that disappears, the 100, and they go back to a T20 competition for the men or the women, as long as the women are still getting very, very good pushing. It's still a professional league. They've still got to pay the bottom end of the women's cricketers a lot more in the 100, which is a big problem. It's a bit of a problem in the women's big bash as well. Uh, they've got to keep pushing the women. The, whether it's 100 or 120 balls, I don't think really matters, mate. Um, you know, I, I don't think that, that side of the gimmick may disappear anyway, right? They might call it the 100 one day, and it might be... Um, it might just be a normal T20 game. Or everyone in the world could be like, do you know what? If we shave off 20 balls. But I think other places in the world, especially in Asia, are never going to shave off those extra 20 balls because that's an extra hour of advertising if you, the way that um, teams are allowed to play in the, in the IPL and the PSL at times, right? So I can't imagine anyone else doing that. So I'm not too worried about that side of it. Uh, but what I would say is that I think it, because of the way the tournament was structured from the scratch, from scratch, it meant that the women were actually integrated in it. And it's important to note that while the ECB will get a lot of credit for that, a lot of that comes down to what the BBC were asking and what advertisers were asking. Advertisers were desperate to have a bunch of women's cricketers to, to spruik um, because that's a whole new market for them. And so they really wanted that to be involved. So while the ECB were trying to do it, I think the BBC's involvement and then COVID as well uh, with the double headers uh, really, really did help and change things a lot. So what you had was, even if this was a T20 tournament, I still think that the women would have been pushed up. I don't think the 100 element of it really changed. It was a bunch of different things coming together at the right time that made that a bigger league for women than we'd ever seen before. Okay. I understand. I understand. All right. Cheers, mate. Thanks for your question. All right, who we got next? Ikanth, you there? Damn it, hi. What's your question? So it's about editing. So you've been an editor and a writer for a while, and uh, I've heard you speak about writing as much as you can. So can you talk me through the basics that you've tried and the, how you map the process and uh, things like that? You're talking about writing editing? Yeah. Yeah, so I suppose... I plan quite a lot of my writing. It's very rare that I don't have an idea when I sit down and that I haven't thought about it. I haven't thought about where things will fit. But then I basically write once I've got all that sort of structure down, whether it be a hugely detailed spider structure or, um, or whatever I've done beforehand, um, or if it's just a couple of notes to, to link a bunch of things together. Then I write and I let the writing take me where I, it needs to take me. Generally, I've done my research before. Um, and then I write afterwards with my research already ready. And then what I, basically what I'm trying to do then is I'm trying to work out after I have finished it, what I am trying to say, what is this piece actually about? What, what is the reason for this piece existing? And at that point, once I can work that out, that allows me to edit pretty much everything else I've read, uh, I've written. So, um, so at this point, if there's a couple of diversions that I don't need, then you know, or that don't make sense for this particular article, I take them out. I can always keep them for later if I want to. Um, 
And the rest of the article is sort of, uh, is pared down based on that original thing of what am I actually trying to say here? Why is this piece exist? What is the point of it? Why and, and why have I written it? And so then I'm editing uh, the article at that point with that in mind. And that just, once you can work out what that is, it just makes everything very, very easy um, because you could say, oh, well, that, that, that whole paragraph doesn't need to be there because it doesn't make any sense. Or that whole paragraph is like in the middle, but actually that should be the end because that's the main crux of what I'm, I'm trying to get across to people. Um, and it allows you to do that. Um, and, and I do, I, you know, do that process. Um, and then once I feel happy with that, um, then I start worrying about, you know, spelling errors and typos and grammar and all that other sort of stuff. But uh, my main editing is usually structural. Um, uh, I'm not very good at picking up editing uh, problems when it comes to um, spelling and typos and everything, but I can pick structural problems uh, in a heartbeat and I can work out that where someone has fudged something um, in a piece and they need to go back and do more research or be more clear about things. So um, I'm basically, I'm going through to make sure that my, that first big edit, I'm going back through the article to make sure that it says what I want it to say, and then it says it clear enough that anyone will be able to understand it. Thanks, Mark. No worries. Cheers. Oh, Robbie, you're there. I, I can hear. Excellent. Uh, it's about like generations of batting talent for England. In particular, mm-hmm. something I've, I've noticed is like there's this huge gap from 1992 to 1997, where basically no English batters were born. So, like, it's in tests and one day. So, I can listen to the Jeep, it's pretty sure. It's Sidney, <laughs> Jennings, Livingston, Duckett, uh, Lees, and Folks, if you count Folks as a batter or not. And, you know, there's just this big gap. And it's like compared to the like, White Ball squad, we had in the 18 months before 1992, you've got Besto, Roy, Roots, Stokes, and Butler were all born. So, my question is, why do you think that is? Is it just a random thing that happened? And secondly, do you think that's maybe one of the reasons why the young, talented guys that are coming into the test side now, like Hope and Lawrence and all that, why they're struggling because they're kind of being picked because there's no one else rather than them bashing the door down to get picked that way? So I think that if we're really, I think some of that is fluky, what you've just said then. Some of it may have to do with the way that Red Bull batters were coached at a certain uh, period, that sort of, that whole generation that you're just talking about probably came through at the point where the coaches were like, just trust your technique, do whatever works for you, which was a big thing in English batting. Um, and it turned out that we ended up with Rory Burns and Dob Sibley from that. Right. So I think, I do think that's a big part of it. I also think if you look at pretty, I can't remember the date, but if you look at almost everything after 1965 how many english batters have come through and been genuinely great batters after having come through in the english system so you'd probably have cook root boycott gooch but the second half of his career maybe not the first half help me out if i'm missing any here robbie i don't gower even gower i don't i mean it'd be hard pressed to say that Gower was a player of great innings. Was he a great batter? Um, He was on the fringes, perhaps, but he probably wasn't in the top five or ten batters in the 80s. Um, uh, You know, very good player, don't get me wrong. They've had some very good players. Graham Thorpe was another very good player um, as well. So there's been a couple of very good players like Gower that have come through, and and, and a few that have come through. I would say what happened was that 
England county cricket probably prepared batters in a particular way, and we never noticed that it was a flawed method until um, every other team in the world started getting good at batting or and bowling, I suppose. Um, so as other teams start to get good, so the real explosion of international cricket happens in the seventies and eighties. Up until that point, even if you had flawed county batters, they were so much better than the the opposition they were going up against outside of occasionally Australia and occasionally West Indies and, and uh, you know, the, the flare-up South African era right at the end there. That it didn't matter that they, they had problems. I would say that if, if the real trend is probably from 1965 through to now of just how rare it is for an England batter to be brought up in England and be a, a great player. And that, to me, is the bigger question mark over when county cricket was better than test cricket, that didn't matter. When county cricket becomes worse than test cricket, that seems to become a, a very, very interesting thing. Also, if you look at Root, so we're talking about the three players, Boycott. Boycott and Cook are almost singular units, um, very English players, to be fair, but almost singular batting units. Root had a Pakistani coach. And it became a brilliant player of spin. If Root wasn't a brilliant player of spin the way that he became, didn't grow up on a pitch that spun sideways and didn't have a Pakistani coach available to him, uh, Moen Khan's brother, um, I wonder if he's even in that three. So he's almost a fluke um, within that three. I think that's the bigger pattern. Does that make sense? Um, but what you, have, what you have pointed out may be... Um, in what you've pointed out may be that coaching thing that happened in the middle where you start getting Sibley and Rory Burns and I don't know who I'm trying to think. There must be some other England players with weird. Sorry, go. So the thing is, like you're talking about great players. These aren't even good. Like, well, Sibley might be good, but you know, it's not, it, there aren't even players in the team who you think, oh, they're a bit rubbish. It's, there aren't any at all. Like none of them have made any runs, but now we do have players like Pope and Lawrence and Crawley and Hamid and, I've missed some. There actually are now players coming through who are getting long, much longer runs than any of the players in that whole five-year period. Who are like, yeah. again, they're not, they're not great, but they're okay. Well, established or less than 30, but you know what I mean. But the, the whole great thing doesn't, it doesn't. So when you're looking at that, the reason I'm using great is that clearly, if you look at before 1965, the majority of the batters who were great in the history of cricket are English, Right. After that 1965 period, it's quite clear that that doesn't happen anymore. That's going to have a follow-on all the way down the system, right? That's not just that's not just on great players. That means you're not going to have as many players like Gower who are, you know, England great players, right? It means you're not going to have as many players like, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of one, you know, uh, uh, someone like Chris Broad who's like a fringe-level English player, like everything, every level of player is going to drop down if, if you're producing less batters. That generation thing that you're talking about, it could be two things. It could be a fluke, but if we take away a fluke for a side, it could be that era of players who were coached to trust their natural instincts. The other thing that it could be is that the, the, the batting era just before all those players was one of probably the strongest one that England have had since the 60s, right? So KP, Bell, Strauss, Cook, Trot, Pryor, Collingwood, Flintoff, right? It's another thing I looked into. Yeah. The number of the players for you who average more than more than 40 in tests, and like half of them played at the same time in since the 60s, half of them played at the same time. 
all in that one era, right? Is it possible that those players actually meant that some of those other players that you're talking about from that age group that you're talking about perhaps came into the game when they'd spent too long in county cricket and got into bad habits as well, right? So there's all these different micro factors over that. But what I would say is that the major factor, right, is that England hasn't been producing great batters in their county setup for almost, well, I would say for the best part of 50 years. And I don't think that's an accident. And you can blame the coaching. You can blame generational. But something, sometimes you just don't have as much talent in one generation as you do in another one. Like if you have a look at NBA drafts, you know, there are two or three years where a bunch of great NBA players come out and then there's a four or five years we don't have that generation come through. That, those things are natural and part of sport. But what I think is the overlying question here is, is the England system set up at the moment to produce great batters? And I would say that that's probably not the case right at the moment. Um, And it could be pitches, it could be coaching, it could be a generational thing. It could just be that the rest of the world caught up and that the way that counter cricket sets up players doesn't set them up to be people who can average a lot because of the kind of pitches they have to grow up on and then go into counter cricket on. All those things could be part of it. Um, uh, And that generation that we were talking about might have had an impact as well. Um, The only other thing I would say is that when you're looking at all those numbers, all those players that you said who average over 40, remember they all batted in the greatest batting era um, since World War II, right? You can't discount the fact that all of them were involved in that batting era. I was talking about this with Matt Pryor recently about his batting average. And and I said, you realize if you're batting now, your batting average will be lower. And he's like, yeah, I'd like to think I could work it out. But yes, I get that if everyone's average is lower, mine would probably be lower as well. Like that has to be factored in. So Dom Sibley averaging what, 28, 26? I don't know. Yeah, whatever he averages. In a, in a, in a better batting era, he probably averages 34, 35, right? Um, and Bairstow is another one. Of, yeah, I think Bairstow is one, one of the players who had a huge dip. When the, when the batting got tougher. If he continued to bat in a decent batting era, he probably averages high 30s, maybe even low 40s. And we all think of him as a star. And instead, we think of him as this batted player. Now, the interesting thing with all this is that, as you mentioned before, white ball players is not a problem. Because you talked about the two different generations of white ball players. But even that gen, I'm sure in that five-year period that you're looking at, there's a lot of very good white ball players. They might not have gone into the side because... That's the thing that... Well, I know there's Livingston and so. Sorry, I interrupt you. You're going to say that you can get in the side. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, but but I would say that if you look at the overall talent of white ball players, that that it would be much higher even in that five-year period than the red ball players, even if they haven't got in the side because the other players are already in and really good, right? And what I was going to say with that is England have gone out of their way to make flatter batting pitches. I think the Blast had a bunch of years where it was the highest um, uh, uh, runs per over of any um, T20 tournament in the world. The very, very high-scoring tournament. We, you, you know, I moved over here when the Pro 40 was around. Do you remember the Pro 40 pitches? Absolutely flat as pancakes. Everyone's smashing the ball everywhere. Is it a surprise that in on those pitches, we're seeing a lot of England batters coming through who are really good at smashing the white ball, and on the red ball pitches, um, which Darren Stevens and, and Porter and these sorts of guys are unplayable, um, we're not. I don't think that's an accident, right? Like these, you know, so that's what I'm talking about. There's all these different micro... Um, parts of it and I think that also if you're getting a lot more white ball players coming through and you only have the England talent pool hasn't gone from I don't know what would you say there's 
there's probably 5,000 people in the UK at any one time who are pretty good at cricket, right? You know, uh, not all, obviously, nowhere near professional level, but are good at cricket. Has that number swelled massively in the last 10 to 15 years? No. But what has swelled is the fact that Phil Salt and these other sorts of players, Lewis Gregory and those sorts of players, are choosing white ball cricket over red ball cricket. So you're actually having fewer players coming through who are specializing against the red ball now than you probably had a generation before. So that also should play a part. So all these little different things are happening. And Australia had a very similar period um, when I would say the Ed Cowan, George Bailey, Mark Cosgrove, Adam Voges, um, Callum Ferguson era, where there was a lot of really, really talented young Australian batters who came through and none of them just made it to the next level. Voges was one of the few who made it, but very late. You know, uh, Ed Cowan made it very late. George Bailey... I saw all those guys when they were young. They were incredibly talented. And I would have thought that they would have gone on to dominate first-class cricket and then gone into the test team, and none of them did. Mark Cosgrove didn't even play a test match. Um, And there was a lot of guys in that era who did very similar things. Sometimes, and and what what was pointed out in Australian cricket was that it was at a very similar point where they took away the second 11 competition. So the second 11 competition in Australia used to be a um, competition where it didn't matter what your age was. If you were a 34-year-old butcher who had taken an eight, a bunch of eight-wicket hauls in, in, in grade cricket in Adelaide, you were likely to play for South Australian second 11. And what they did was they made it an age group competition. And a lot of people thought that weakened the players because it meant that people rushed into the first class system without having to defeat the local butcher and the accountant who probably could have been a professional but went to university first and all those sorts of people. Those sorts of micro things, it's really hard to keep track of them. But sometimes those things really affect what happens. Did Dom Sibley and Rory Burns and that whole generation, did they come through the uh, when they – was it they – when the Tiflex balls were being used, did they come through the um, the era with the tosses, where that where uh, where the tosses were happening? What was the so other one? Get down to consider Burns is actually a little bit older than that. He's kind of in the Stokes Rube Besto age, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's but if you have a look at his development as a professional, he's he's actually in that other um, era. Right, because he he wasn't pushed through um, the age group levels. Uh, it, no one ever thought Burns was going to make it. So so Sibley and Burns probably have a very similar age group development curve. Does that make sense? Just because Burns was basically a club cricketer until until later on. So those sorts of guys. So you've got you've got. I'm trying to remember. Did they did they not use the heavy rollers in second division for a couple of years, or was it in both divisions of counter cricket? They used the Tiflex balls. They had the thing where the um, o- opposition captains could do, uh, could decide on the toss. Uh, the point system changed in counter cricket. Do you see what I'm saying? Like there's so many little things that changed in that era. Um, plus the way that cricket was coached in England changed. We know that we know that people were try- basically white ball cricket. People were taught fundamentally clear your front leg, trust your eyes, hit through the line. And in Red Bull cricket, it was trust your techniques. Look at all these different techniques around the world. Maybe we can breed our own different techniques. And, you know, and it didn't really work in English cricket. It's really hard to keep on all those little micro things. That's why I go back to the original point, which is it's been a very long time since England consistently made batters who were greats. And even when you talk about that era where all those really good players were in that team, even those players were generally not the best players in the world 
at their positions, right? Ian Bell wasn't the best number four or, or, or number five in the world uh, uh, at his time. As good as Matty Pryor was, there was usually another wicketkeeper out there who was, you know, at his level or even slightly better. There was like lots of, um, you know, uh, you know, Strauss wasn't well, probably wasn't the best opener. Those sorts of things uh, were, were true. There was always better players around than them. It just happened to be that they had, they're batting, um, you know, six or seven great options available to them to make a you know like voltron you know build a, a super a super bot right um i you know you don't get enough cricket podcasts talking about voltron but so the some of the parts were incredible and the the amount of plays that they had were really good even if some of them obviously did partly come you know in matt Pryor's case learned his early cricket in south africa and kp's case learned most of his cricket in south africa and the same with trotty um uh you know but there were still a lot of England um, uh, players coming through that system. But I just wonder why we keep seeing the same thing over and over again that England doesn't do it. And we're looking at all, and, and when you see it, it's like everyone's blaming everyone batting on off stump at the moment, right? And you're looking at the age group thing, and I'm fascinated with the pitches and the coaching. But is it the whole thing? Is it the whole thing from beginning to end that county cricket was set up to make great county cricketers, and county cricket wasn't set up to make great test match cricketers? And I wonder if that is still the case. And that is essentially what happened was everyone else worked out how to make their cricketers really good around the rest of the world. And before 1965, you didn't have great, you know, Australia was the only great team before 1965 uh, that wasn't England. And the quality of county cricket back then was, you see a lot of players with really high test level records um, and they go into county cricket and they have average records. Um, we know how strong county cricket was then. And we know that the through the explosion of India, Pakistan, New Zealand, West Indies, latterly Sri Lanka as well, um, that lots of people have really good cricketers, right? And I wonder if sometimes that is underestimated and that that original system that worked for 100, over 100 years, producing great English cricketers, especially batters, but also seam bowlers and, and spinners, stopped working because of... Yeah, a multitude of reasons. So there you go. We answered the hell out of that, my man. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for your question. <laughs> Who have we got next? Hydrogen X. Yes. Uh, so uh, I want to talk about uh, the rankings. Uh, I know I've listened to enough of uh, that uh, rankings should not be there on the end. Uh, basically, they don't depict the true sense of who's the uh, what they're supposed to depict. But uh, uh, I want to know your opinion or how far the rankings are good also for uh, in general uh, knowing about cricket and like uh, if somebody sees the uh, test team rankings Australia is on number mm. one but they have just played Pakistan uh, but before that uh, they had they had not played overseas even once in like two years more than mm. two years that shows that it does not depend but I'm basically asking that how are rankings good we have spent like enough time like criticizing the rankings, but how are they good in any sense? They're not good. They're not good. Okay. So the NBA uh, has Rookie of the Year, MVP, All-NBA, All-Star voting, uh, Sixth Man of the Year, the All-Rookie team, the All-Defensive teams, all these different things, right? And it helps fans understand who the best player is, who the best rookie is, all these different things. That's all it does, Hydrogen X. It helps fans kind of get it together. But fans are still going to disagree with most of it. And they're going to say that despite the fact that Nikola Djokic is the a great offensive player, his defensive limitations mean that Joel Embiid is better 
and you know maybe Giannis is better and maybe Devin Booker is better because his team is better and he's being part of it. They don't answer anything. Um, they give you a, an idea roughly of the quality of the certain teams when it comes to these rankings. Um, but they don't answer any questions. And you can't actually, there's no algorithm I could give you that would tell you who the best test team is because everyone plays in different places. And then, and even if you want to be really exact with it, even if they all played in the same places, injuries would play a concern and conditions would play a concern. You know, one game would be rained out and one game wouldn't and one pitch would be, sorry, pardon me, one pitch would be ragging sideways and one wouldn't. All these sorts of things are, uh, very much just part of um, how we go. What the ICC tried to do with the rankings a long time ago was just give newspapers something to write about and fans something to talk about. That's what the MVP is, and that's what most of all, all the sort of st- nonsense, you know, that's what the balloon d- Dior is, right? That's, that's just a bunch of people voting. It's not, it's, you know, it's just deciding who the best striker is all the time, um, essentially, isn't it? Or the best forward in football. Um they're all flawed, but they're there so that when, when, who was it? Who went to number one in the rankings recently? Was it Jadeja went to number one in, uh, so Jason Holder went to number one in the rankings and then Jadeja went to number one in the rankings yeah, in, in the all-rounder. Jadeja. Yep. So Jason Holder overtook Jadeja and then Jadeja overtook Jason Holder within the space of about three weeks, right? This happened or, or the other way around. I can't remember the order it was. But one of them was number one, then the other one was number one, then the other one was number one. This happened in back-to-back because they were both playing test series at the same time. When Jason Holder went to number one, oh, the West Indies and Crick Info and Crick Buzz all wrote articles about it, and it was on social media, and there was a lot of buzz. A week later, when Jadeja went to number one, all the India media and Crick Info and Crick Buzz wrote articles about it. You want to know why rankings exist? It's for that. Thanks a lot, Jared, and you are making great content. No worries. Thank you, Hydrogen X. Thank you for your question. All right, there's just a couple of written questions here before the IPL game starts. Uh, Dio says, I have a theory that the team with the most all-rounders is generally a better T20 team. Uh, well, you're interesting in this, Dio, because you've included Australia. I'm not sure Australia really had any all-rounders. I'm not sure they had anyone who could genuinely bowl four overs um, and bat top six or top seven um, at all. Uh, what, what they had really was just a really strong core of players um, at the top and at the and um, and with the ball, so at the top of the order and with the ball, um, that allowed them to have a bunch of sort of non all rounders who could do a little bit of either. Um, realistically, yes, a team with genuine all rounders should be the best team, but there's almost no genuine all rounders. Um, so it depends on what you mean. There was a team I can't remember who it was, but there was a team in the IPL six or seven years ago. And they contacted me because I was writing about this. And they were saying, we've, we've got all these all-rounders in our team. And I was like, do you? You've got one guy here who averages eight balls a game. You've got another guy here who um, uh, can only really hit right arm seam bowling. Uh, you've got another guy here who can't really bat all bowl. So, yes, if you actually had genuine all-rounders, if, if you had a team with Andre Russell, um, Sunil Narain, Chucky Bal Hassan, and Ben Stokes, if Ben Stokes ever worked out T20 cricket consistently, um, I'm trying to think of who else, you know, uh, if you had all those players available to you, you'd be the best team in the world. But that's not kind of all rounders. Look at that Australian team you're talking about. Maxwell can only bowl in certain situations. Ne- you know, very rarely going to bowl his full four overs. Marcus Stoinis can bowl an over or two here or there uh, and is a very confident bowler, but 
goes at what, nine and a half, 10 runs and over. Mitch Marsh, again, very similar to Marcus Stoinis. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think. Well, and Travis Head, let's say, if you put him in, in, in you know, he might be in, in Australia's plans going ahead. Again, like Glenn Maxwell can bowl occasionally, but if you have Glenn Maxwell and Marcus, St- sorry, if you have Glenn Maxwell and Travis Head in the same thing, the same way as if you have Marcus Stoinis and Mitch Marsh in the same thing, it's really hard to bowl them all because they all do a similar thing and need the same kind of overs. So, yes. Generally, the best thing would be to have a, a lot of all-rounders, but there aren't a lot of all-rounders. There are almost no genuine all-rounders in T20 cricket, one-day cricket, or test cricket. Um, and most all-rounders, you usually what you're looking at is a player who is par at, at best, if you can get someone who's par at their other skill um, and then is plus at their main skill, that gives you a huge advantage. But what... What you can do, and, and the CSK CSK team is a very, very good example of this. Last year, if you have enough players who have enough divergent skills within their all-roundedness, then suddenly what you have is a team that can bat to 8, 9, 10 um, and has multiple bowling options. So Jadeja and Moeen Ali, neither of them are dead set four overs a game bowlers. Jadeja's probably around three overs a game. Moenelli's around two overs a game, but one of them spins it that way and one of them spins it that way. And it means that you can mix and match them a little bit and you can probably get between four and six overs a game out of them all the time uh, because of the, the way that matchups work. Uh, Sam Curran and uh, Dwayne Bravo is another really good mix and match. They both bowl at a similar pace, but one of them likes to bowl in the middle and the end and the other one likes to bowl at the start and one's a left armor and one's a right armor. Now you're talking about, it doesn't matter if they're a little bit flawed now because you can mix and match all the way through the game. And the same with their hitting as well. Um, you know, certain players like to hit in certain areas. Mo and Ellie, you can send right up the top. And, you know, uh, Sam Curran and, uh, and, and Dwayne Bravo, you're probably safe to the end. Um, all these different options. Yes, get as many all-rounders as you can in. But I've seen more teams fail trying that theory than almost anything else because it isn't that they are all-rounders, you need to know exactly what you mean when you are saying an all-rounder. You need to know exactly what that player's worth is to your team and how they're going to fit in with the other players. Uh, so it's it's much more of an alchemy than anything else. Um, they can uh, So you've, you've said they can give you a tactical advantage. Yeah, they can also give you a tactical disadvantage because you can go into a team with no one who can bat and no one who can bowl. That That's why they're all-rounders. They're not specialists in any one skill, which means that you might have seven bowling options, but you might not have four bowlers who can just get through their overs because you've got all these all-rounders in. It fails again and again and again. Um, and that's the reason we teams don't do it. If you're very clever in the way Chennai was perfect the way that they did it last year. Um, Australia was dead lucky to win that World Cup, by the way, uh, with what they did. Um, and it, it's also why it's really hard with all-rounders um, in international cricket because quite often they're going to be very similar to each other. Uh, you know, having Chris Wokes and uh, Sam Curran is a real advantage, and Mo and Ali was a real advantage because all three of them were slightly different. Um, but uh, Cameron Green, Marcus Stoinis, and um, Mitch Marsh are very, very similar. That's not a tactical advantage but you've still got three all-rounders, right? So you have to think about those sorts of things. Although I do think Australia might actually end up playing with all three of those guys just because it will be fun. Um, And I'm looking forward to that, if nothing else. But thank you to everyone who came on. Remember, you can support us on Patreon if you want to ask your questions up front or you're having trouble with the the links and everything else. Patreon, first class and above, and you can do that. Huge shout-out to Bodyline T-shirts for all of their cricket T-shirts that they have sent me. And, oh, Manscaped, uh, 20% off. 
and free worldwide shipping if you use the code Red Inca, all one word. Just a huge thanks to everyone. Patreon money, just obviously it pays my producer Nick and it helps us get to a more professional point of view. Like if you have a look, some of the pictures on the podcasts are even better. It helps us, you know, push things to TikTok and all those sorts of other places out there. But it also does very important things. Like if you're watching this on YouTube, at the moment, my desk is really tiny and everything is really close to me because I don't have an arm for my microphone. So I have to be really close to the camera and that brings in other problems that you don't give a shit about, but it does. And so I need to replace my desk because I can't clamp things on my desk. All that Patreon money supports all those sorts of things. It really does help us go ahead. Obviously, we're getting more and more advertisers. If you're listening to this on the Red Inca feed, you'll you'll hear the advertising coming through already. But anyway, you can help support us. So it, you get benefits from the Patreon, you know, ad-free podcasts and uh, early podcasts and AMAs with me and all the other stuff that you get on the, on the Patreon, but also just helps us buy equipment for the podcast network, for the YouTube network, and for everything else. So huge shout out to everyone who has supported us, and thanks for coming on. And uh, the IPL's just started, so I'm going to head over and watch some cricket. Talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.